The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. There will be a congregational meeting on the 26th of February, which is a week from today, next Sunday morning, immediately following the morning service. It's our annual congregational meeting. Then again, just mark your calendars. We don't, I want to start announcing this. Make sure it gets in the uh, bulletin next month, the first week of the month. On Tuesday night, the 7th, and on Thursday night, the 9th, there will be no Bible class. That's the week before the conference. So this way, all of you have plenty of time to get your washing done, your errands run, your grocery shopping, cooking all, baking all those cookies that have to be baked. Uh, the uh, sound and sound and light team can get everything squared away, and it just takes uh, a little pressure off of everybody time-wise. So no class Tuesday night or Thursday night, the week of the conference. And then after the conference, there will be a meltdown, I'm told. Uh, that's what it's what post conference stress dis- disorder. That's what I've been told. Everybody gets all excited, comes. There's such a great week, and then the week after it's just this letdown. So prepare yourself. We we won't allow any letdown. We'll just keep going forward. Let's bow our heads together as we begin our morning worship. Father, thank you that we have this time to gather together as a body of believers to express our worship towards you in song and in study. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom that we have in this nation, that it was purchased on the bloody fields of battle from the war for independence up through recent wars in the Middle East. Father, especially on this day, we are reminded of a great battle that took place uh, beginning on February the 19th in World War II, the Battle of Iwo Jima. And it was men on that island that helped secure our freedoms today. Now, Father, we thank you for this time again and ask that it be a time to honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's our custom to give attention to the reading of Scripture. So if you'll open your Bibles, you can read along with me. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a meditation written to praise the importance and priority of the Word of God. The writer of the psalm uses several different words in the Hebrew in order to emphasize and stress the importance of the law or the testimonies or the ordinances or God's Word or God's statutes. The word law that you find translated here is from the Hebrew word Torah. And too often we, th- we restrict the meaning of that word to the Mosaic Law. It has a broader connotation than that and can mean only the Mosaic Law, but often it means simply instruction. It is that which puts us on target, literally. So think of that when you see the word law. Don't just restrict that to the Mosaic Law. Beginning in verse 41. Let your mercies also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings, and I will not be ashamed. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's stand together and we'll sing our second hymn, hymn number 46, Faith is the Victory. Scripture teaches us that as believers, priests, it's our privilege and responsibility to uh, support the local church as well as missions. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the collection, let's bow our heads in prayer. 
Father, we're indeed grateful for all that you provide for us. We know that the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, the uh, jobs we have, every aspect of our life is due to your goodness and your grace. And Father, our gifts are simply a token of our expression of gratitude as we thank you for all that you have given us. We dedicate this to your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we have your word where you declare the end from the beginning. We have your word where you reveal yourself to us. We have your word where you define for us the nature and the basis of our relationship with you. Father, your word tells us that you have provided everything for us for life and godliness. That your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient, the work of Christ is sufficient. So, Father, we gather together as a body of believers to study your word because we know that only through orientation to your word and understanding of life and reality as defined by you can we have peace and happiness and stability. Now, Father, as we study your word today, as we focus on future events and the orientation of our thinking to our future destiny, we pray that uh, you would make us... uh, able to understand these things, that we might gain fresh insight, be motivated in our Christian life, Christian growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now, one of the things that many people think about when they come to the book of Revelation is just prophecy. And that seems to be the general trend. We're going to study Revelation so we can find out about the future. And if we're really good... We may find out how current events fit into prophecy. We may find out what um, what is going on in the Middle East, and we may find out how that affects uh, our newspaper exegesis. But that's not what Revelation is all about. As we study the book of Revelation, what we discover more and more is that The study of these things is really related to orienting our present life so that we are prepared for future events because this time period in which we live as members of the church age, members of the body of Christ, is, as it were, boot camp training. It is our opportunity to be prepared mentally and in terms of our maturity and uh, ability to handle responsibilities under the authority of God for the future role as kings and priests ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ. So prophecy is important because it helps us orient the present uh, to the future. Last time we began, I pointed out that Revelation emphasizes a blessing for everyone who studies it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads, and that's not just the person who sits down and picks it up and reads it devotionally. The word there has to do with reading uh, out loud, reading expositionally. What a pastor does when he uh, teaches, communicates, explains the word to people. Blessed is he who reads. Those who hear, that's the congregation, hear the words of this prophecy, but they don't just hear it, they heed it. It has an impact in their life. It changes their priorities, changes their thinking, uh, reorients their life to God's plan for their future. Those who hear and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a sense of urgency in the book of Revelation. Throughout this book, this sense of urgency, these things are, could happen tomorrow. Once they happen, they'll, they will domino very rapidly. They will, there will be a very quick succession of events. And once this uh, happens with the rapture of the church, then numerous things are going to happen and we have to be ready. 
the theme of Revelation is not that of prophecy, not of what's going to happen. The theme relates to judgment. I pointed this out last time that this is a major theme throughout this book. There's the judgment evaluation of the churches presented in the seven letters to the seven churches in the second and third chapter. There's judgment on earth dwellers uh, in the tribulation. Revelation 4 through 19 covers this great time called the Great Tribulation where God judges the unbelieving world and the world system. There's the judgment of Israel for their disobedience to God and rejection of the Messiah. So much that happens during the Tribulation is focused on the Middle East and focused on Israel because ultimately God's purpose is to bring Israel to a point where they call for the Messiah to come and deliver them. There is a judgment of Satan and all of his henchmen, the demons, the also a judgment of the Antichrist, judgment of the false prophet. Furthermore, we see the judgment of fallen mankind as they appear before the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And finally, there is the judgment of the present heavens and earth as they are destroyed by fire and replaced by the new heavens and new earth, and we go on into eternity. Now, one of the most dominating images of Jesus Christ in Revelation, there are several key images, but one of the most dominating one is that of Jesus Christ as judge. That's what we see at the last part of the first chapter. This vision that John has while he's on the island of Patmos is a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but the way he is dressed, the vocabulary that's used to describe him, his visage is all that of a priest king, I'm priest judge, excuse me. He is the priest judge who is about to come to judge the world. And as the priest judge, he's holding in his hand the seven, the seven stars, which represent the church. And so it's emphasizing his role toward the church, not just as our Savior, but as a priest judge, that he will evaluate us. And of course, we know that that comes at a judgment called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. It is the evaluation judgment of church-age believers, and it occurs during the seven-year tribulation. Now, one of these images of Christ is expressed in Revelation 14, 14 through 16. There John looks, and behold, he sees a white cloud. This is in heaven. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. So this is a picture of Jesus as the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so this image is of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man bringing judgment upon the nations. Now that term Son of Man is also used in the image that we have, in the vision that we have in Revelation chapter 1, because John sees one like the Son of Man. So what does that term mean, Son of Man? As we'll see, it's a term that goes back to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is the Messiah who comes at the end of history to destroy the kingdoms of man and to establish his kingdom over against those of the kingdom of man. So this terminology, son of man, is one that is pregnant with significance from the Old Testament as well as Jesus' frequent uh, reference to himself as the son of man. Revelation 14:16 concludes by saying, So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped, a very dynamic and powerful image of the Lord Jesus Christ bringing judgment upon the earth during the tribulation as he brings all of history to its conclusion. So it is this idea of judgment, accountability, and evaluation that dominates the book of Revelation. Well, last time we started a review, I've been in Revelation quite a bit, we've had a couple of uh, breaks in this last break where we focused on basic doctrine ended a couple of weeks ago. So before we get into our next detailed study, which will begin 
at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3 with the uh, church in Sardis. We need to uh, sort of go back and collect our thoughts and review where we've been so we have an understanding of the details and the significance of what is said in the last four of these, or the last three of these short uh, evaluation statements in the third chapter of Revelation. Last time I focused on the beginning verses of Revelation and pointed out that we have to understand Revelation in terms of its overall structure or outline, which is given in Revelation 119. Jesus tells John to write down the things which you have seen. That is covered in the first chapter, present tense, the things that uh, John just witnessed in terms of the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as the priest judge. Revelation 2 and 3, the things which are, the things which are taking place during this age related to church age doctrine and their evaluation. And then the third element of that uh, commission statement, write down the things which shall take place after these things. And that refers to future events. The events from G- Revelation 4, 1 through 22 have yet to be fulfilled. These things haven't happened yet. They describe what will happen both in heaven and on earth during the seven-year tribulation period, the ultimate conclusion of human history with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at Armageddon to defeat the enemies of God, the enemies of man, the uh, judgment of tribulation unbelievers, the establishment of the messianic kingdom and the final dispensation on earth known as the millennium, a brief description of the millennial kingdom concluding with that revolt of Satan uh, called the Gog-Magog revolution at the end of Revelation 20 culminating in the great white throne judgment. Then the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and the new heavens and earth are established, and Revelation 21 and 22 describe the eternal state. So Revelation 4 through 22 is future. Revelation 1 is past. Revelation 2 and 3 focuses on present dispensational trends. So the book can be outlined this way. Chapter 1, The Glorified Christ as priest judge, chapters 2 through 3, the trends of the church age represented by these seven churches, the things which are, and then chapters 4 through 22, the tribulation, the millennium, and the eternal state. We'll see this chart so many times you'll get sick of it, but that way you'll remember it. The seven churches of Revelation that are addressed here, according to Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Asia is this easternmost part of what is now modern Turkey. It was the Roman province of Asia, and these are seven different cities, not necessarily the most prominent, not necessarily the most important, not necessarily even the largest churches or the greatest impact uh, of Christianity, but these Churches, the seven churches are chosen by the sovereignty of God because they have within their congregation trends that represent the general trends that take place in human history. The number seven indicates a number of completion. So no matter uh, where we are in history, no matter what congregation you're sitting in, your congregation probably imitates one of these seven Congregations. It gives us a, a report card so that we can go back and, and check uh, where we are and how we're doing. We'll look at that a little more next time when I review Chapter 2. Remember when you were a kid? I don't know where you grew up, but here in Houston back when I was uh, coming up through elementary school, on one side of the report card they had your basic academic studies, geography and arithmetic and writing and those kinds of things, and you got a letter grade there. On the other side, they had character traits like self-discipline and courteous and things like that. And you got a check, or you got a plus if you were really good, a check if you were average, and a minus if you needed to do a lot of work. Well, uh, this Revelation 2 and 3 is like that checklist on that right-hand side of that old report card. It is a list of various attributes, character qualities, 
that are evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you look at all of the uh, attributes or character qualities that are evaluated that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, you can come up with quite an extensive list, and that can be sort of a checklist that we each have to evaluate where we are in terms of our own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Well, let's go back and kind of review briefly what we did in the first six verses last time before we go forward. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ. It is a body of doctrine, a body of information, which God the Father has given to the Lord Jesus Christ that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reveal to the Apostle John that concerns the, these future events. John is the one who will bear witness, in verse 2, to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, two words that are loaded with significance because they indicate a legal background, a legal context to the book. The word witness comes out of a courtroom situation. We're familiar with this. You call somebody to be a witness in a courtroom trial, and they're sworn in, and they give their uh, information. And so this is a the witness of the Word of God. Uh, and John is going to bear witness to the Word of God, to its truth, to its veracity, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is also presented as one who came and gave his testimony. And that's how John presents him in the Gospel of John. John twenty thirty one says, These are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. And if you read the whole context, what he has just said before that is there are many other signs which Jesus did, but these are written, these signs. And he relates seven signs, and the last sign is the eighth sign, which is the sign of resurrection. But these are miracles that Jesus performed in order to document his claim to be the Messiah. Then along with this, John also presents certain people who bear witness to him. The first, of course, is John the Baptist who came to bear witness. So within the framework of the Gospel of John, we have, as it were, the argument of a lawyer presenting a legal case. He's going to have two types of of evidence. He's going to have the uh, evidence of witnesses on the one hand and then the evidence of the signs. And when they are brought together in the Gospel of John, you have an unbreakable, unshakable case that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in his name you can have eternal life. Revelation 1.3 goes on to say that there's this blessing for those who read and understand. Why? Because any time there is application of doctrine in a person's life, there's blessing. But especially when we reach that level of maturity, when we're able to postpone gratification and begin to live today in light of eternity. So the first three verses function as a prologue and introduction to the entire book. And then in verse verses 4 through uh, uh, seven, we have a second statement of greetings to the seven churches. And the greetings come from John, but ultimately there's a reference to the uh, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John addresses the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a title that is used numerous times in Revelation to refer to God the Father. It emphasizes His eternity. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, the only throne that matters in Revelation is the throne of God the Father. And before the throne of God the Father is the Holy Spirit. And the term seven spirits represents the uh, fullness of His ministry to the world. And then third and most significantly from Jesus Christ who is then described by this uh, three-part phrase, this triplet, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So in this triplet, we have an emphasis on his ministry past, 
present, and future. He is the first. He is the faithful witness. That is what he did during the first advent. He came as a witness to God, a witness to the truth, a witness to Himself. Third, secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was the firstborn, the firstfruits. Colossians 1, 17 and 18 refers to him as the firstborn. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is his future destiny. He will rule over the kings of the earth. This is not happening today. According to Daniel chapter 7, as the Son of Man, he doesn't come to receive the crown and to rule over the kingdoms of the earth until he destroys that last final kingdom which we refer to as the revived Roman Empire it is the beast that that indescribable horrible destructive beast in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 so it is at that time that the son of man comes it is at that time that Jesus receives his position as the king of the earth presently he is operating in his role as the high priest of the church, seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he continuously makes intercession for you and I as members of the body of Christ. And then there is a a break in the sentence. It is from Jesus Christ. His, his greeting is from Jesus, uh, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, to him. And now he just, having just taken his attention away to God, he then says to and to the and to the son he he makes this dedicatory announcement he says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by means of his own blood so that he is reminded of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross it is Jesus Christ who loved us with an infinite amount of love Jesus Christ who loved each one of us so that he came to fulfill the Father's plan. And the Father's plan was oriented to his going to the cross to die as our substitute. There on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. A a way of describing this in the Scripture is to be washed because it pictures that image of of having uh, impurity removed from the body. And so his... His work of forgiveness, his work of salvation is often pictured through washing. Now you had the same imagery in the Old Testament when the high priest entered into his office. He would be washed from head to toe. Uh, Jesus used that imagery in John chapter uh, 13 when he is washing the feet of the disciples and then uh, Peter, who's feeling a little awkward about having his Lord wash his feet, says, Well, Lord, don't wash my feet. I'm not going to have you do any of this. And the Lord said, Well, well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll have no, no role with me. He says, And then Peter said, Well, Lord, in that case, wash my whole body. And the Lord said, No, no, no. All of you here are cleansed. That is, all of you here have taken that that bath. It is a picture of entry into the body of Christ, a picture of salvation. And so... This image, again, is used continuously in the New Testament, and you have phrases uh, related to this, that we are washed. So this is a sound biblical image of cleansing from sin and salvation. So he has loved us and washed us from our sins by means of his own blood. Now, again, this is, this is imagery. This is not something literal. Uh, you are not scrubbed down with the uh, hemoglobin of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's not what the imagery is talking about. It is talking about the, uh, the, the metaphorical use here, that the use of blood and death uh, by the shedding of blood is a picture and a phrase used throughout the Scripture to refer to a violent kind of death. It doesn't mean there is literal uh, bleeding. For example, in the Noahic Covenant, you have the basis for capital punishment that says that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. Well, does that mean that if I murder somebody by strangulation or by poison, that it does, the death penalty isn't involved? No, it's understood that the phrase shedding of blood is a phrase that refers to a violent uh, kind of death. And so when we talk about the blood of Christ on the cross that was shed for us, we're talking about this, this violent death that occurred on the cross, 
and it, it references his physical death, but the death that was that was significant for our cleansing was the spiritual death, that time when he separated from God for three hours, when darkness was on the face of the earth, and God the Father imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ our sins, so that Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in him. It is that spiritual death that is what was efficacious for us, our salvation. Not only did he love us and wash us from our sins in his own blood, but verse 6 says he has made us, and this is a prophetic use of this term, he has made us a kingdom, not kings, that's the way the King James translated it, but a kingdom, literally, the better manuscripts have, a kingdom that is priests to his God. So it's not kings and priests, which you'll have in the New King James or King James Version, but he made us a kingdom, comma, priests to his God. So the function, we're like the, the same thing that... that we find in Exodus chapter uh, 19, verse 6, that God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests. We're, the, we're a priestly kingdom, and we are priests to God and Father, and that will be our role, as we'll see in the future millennial kingdom. And then verse 7, John goes to the future. Behold, he's coming with, with the clouds, literally, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And their break occurs there. That's where I stopped last time. And then in verse 8, we have another sentence, and I have a, uh, because I'm using uh, Tim LaHaye's Prophecy Study Bible, I use that not for the notes, I use it because it's skinny and it fits in my briefcase easier. You know, you just People always come up to me and say, well, what Bible do you use? And they're, they're surprised when I have such a such a uh, simple reason for using it. it. Has nothing to do with anything other than when I travel, I need a skinny Bible, and so it's skinny. The fact that I know everybody who contributed to it is just beside the point. But it's a red letter Bible. I I do not like red letter Bibles because red letter Bibles have a implication that what's in red is more from God than what's in black. But see, since it's all from God, it's all been inspired by God, it all ought to be read, because God says all of it. So in the red letter edition, they put this in red. Now, if you have a red letter edition and you see that verse in red, what is that saying? It's saying that Jesus said this. See, there's an interpretation here that verse 7 is a statement by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verse reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. When I originally exegeted this back in the 15th or 16th lesson in this series, I went through more detail here. In a nutshell, we don't have 100% of the New Testament. We have, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, we have about 105% of the New Testament. That means that we have things that have uh, words and phrases that have entered, in due, due to, entered into the manuscript due to copyist errors, uh, due to many different types of copyist errors depending on the circumstances and situation. And so in the course of time, we've, uh, we have well over 5,000 manuscripts or fragments or verse quotations from the New Testament. So there's no doubt as to what the New Testament said. But there are a few places where a word here or a phrase there uh, is either left out of some manuscripts or added into other manuscripts. Now, the King James and the New King James Version are based on a Greek collection of manuscripts that was published in the early 16th century, in the early 1500s, and it became known as the Textus Receptus, uh, usually abbreviated as TR, not Teddy Roosevelt, but Textus Receptus. And the TR was limited to only about eight or nine Greek manuscripts, and the oldest of which was the 9th century A.D., so even among its, the group of manuscripts it represents, it's not a very good representation. 
Then by the end of the 19th century, we had discovered, especially in the 19th century, a whole host of manuscripts, the most famous of which were four manuscripts that were discovered that had their origin down in northern Africa. And many of you know the story about Tischendorf discovering the uh, the manuscript up at um, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai and stories about Samuel Tregellis with his photographic memory going into the Vatican and virtually memorizing Codex Vaticanus, which the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't release. But he memorized it so well that he went out and published it, and that forced them to publish it. And Some of the other manuscripts, there are basically four that date to the uh, late 300s, early 400s, and so all of a sudden people thought, wow, now we have uh, manuscripts that are very close to the time the Bible was written. They must be more accurate. Obviously, older is better, right? Some of us think older is better. Uh, older is more accurate. But if you have a bad copy of a 2nd century manuscript and a bad copy is made in the 3rd century, it's still a bad copy. But if you have a faithful copy of a 2nd century manuscript, even though the faithful copies no older than the 8th century, then the faithful copy, which is newer, is better than the older copy. So by the middle 19th or middle 20th century, you had men who were very much in the minority in this discipline begin to argue a case that, no, the reading in the majority of manuscripts was superior to the older is more accurate view. Now you all look confused. That's it in a nutshell. That's why all of a sudden in about the 1960s, well, a little earlier with the Revised Standard Version, you started getting uh, versions like the Revised Standard Version, New American Standard, uh, New Century Bible, uh, New International Version. Did I say that? New American Standard. All these are modern translations differ in places from the King James and New King James because King James and New King James is based on what is called the Textus Receptus. Most of your modern translations are based on the older is better view, which was also the product of the Westcott-Hort theory that came out at the end of the 19th century. And that's why you, you look at a King James on this, and you look at New American Standard, and they'll have phrases in the King James that aren't in the New American Standard. And so you say, wow, what's the difference? How do I know what ought to be there? Well, that's the whole science of textual criticism, and I, we really don't have time to, to get off on that. But the problem is that in the book of Revelation, you have a lot of these differences. And you have some of them affect interpretation significantly and affected it historically. So that when you come to verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord... It looks like it's the Lord Jesus Christ talking because the phrase the beginning and the end and simply the phrase Lord can very usually refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to God the Father. Now, that only appears in the TR. If you look at the both the older is better version approach and the majority text approach, which are the two really opposing views, they both have a different reading, and they agree. Now, when those two agree, th that's almost a dead set, absolute, this is the, what the Word of God said, because everybody agrees that the TR was not based on really good copies. So Revelation 1.8 should be corrected to read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, comma, says the Lord, and I didn't put it in here, says the Lord God. Now, that's an important assertion, says the Lord God, because when you get that phrase, Lord God, hakurios theos, it always refers to God the Father, not the Son in the New Testament, who is and who was and who is to come. And that phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, is always applied everywhere else it's mentioned in the in the book of Revelation to God the Father not to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is how you, what you beat your head against the wall doing an exegesis at home as a pastor. You have to check every phrase. How is it used? To whom does it refer? Every place that it's used in the, in the book of Revelation. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So now you have the, uh, a third line of evidence, which is 
the Almighty, and that refers exclusively in revelation to God the Father. So now, all of a sudden, we come to this verse that, based on the King James translation, has traditionally been taken as referring to a, 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 an utterance by the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly, review, He's not the one speaking here. It's God the Father who lies behind the giving of the revelation because, remember, it is God the Father who gave the revelation to the Lord Jesus Christ, back in verse 1, to give to and to uh, disclose to John. So let's just look at a couple of the verses real briefly that I'm alluding to. Uh, Luke one thirty two. he will be great, referring to the coming Messiah. This is the announcement of his birth. And he will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God. That's the only time the phrase Lord God is used outside the book of Revelation. And who does it refer to? God the Father. Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. To whom are they referring? The one who's sitting on the throne, who's sitting on the throne. It's God the Father. Because in a couple of verses after this, another personage comes into the throne room, and it's the Lamb. So this can't be a reference to the Son. And notice it also describes the Almighty as the one who was and who is and who is to come. Another verse, Revelation eleven seventeen, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. There you have Lord God connected to Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. A second phrase used there, because you have taken your great power and reigned. And who is this referring to in context? It's referring to God the Father. Revelation 15.3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here you have God, the term, the name God, juxtaposed to the Lamb as two different, uh, two different personages. Uh, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just as true are your ways, O King of the saints. And if you examine the passage in the context of Revelation 15, it's talking about God the Father and addressing this is a song they sang, and all the songs they sing are addressed to the one on the throne, who's God the Father. And then Revelation 16, verse 7, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So, again and again you have these statements made where the term Lord God and Almighty are juxtaposed to, uh, or represent the one on the throne, not the Lamb. And it's really clear in this verse, Revelation 21-22, talking about the eternal state in the future, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty. And who? The Lamb. See, two different personages. Don't confuse them. We have to make sure we keep the members of the Trinity uh, distinct and straight. Revelation 22.3, There shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Again, a distinction between these two uh, personages. Revelation 22.5, There shall be no night there. They need no light, no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God. That's God the Father gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Okay, so our conclusion here is simply this, that, that this statement in verse 8 is from God. He is, after this greeting from John, there is a statement from God the Father putting, as it were, his stamp on the message of this book. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is His message to us. Verse 9 then gives us the occasion of this revelation to John. It occurred in approximately 90-95, A.D. 95, when John was in exile. He had been arrested during a persecution during the reign of Domitian, and he was exiled to a small island off the western coast of Turkey called Patmos. It's just a sort of a crescent-shaped island 40 miles off the coast of Turkey and a group of islands called the Dodecanese. It was a safe haven in storms, and there was a small contingent there. Now we have to correct the translation a little bit due to uh, textual issues, but it's only one word here. 
I, John, your brother and companion in the adversity kingdom patience. It's almost one phrase. Adversity kingdom patience. It foreshadows uh, the future adversity in preparation for the kingdom and the endurance of Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God. He's there because he is being punished, penalized because of his stand for the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the second time we have this phraseology. We had it back in verse 2. Again, it ties everything together. John is a witness, a legal witness in the courtroom of history for the word of God and he is proclaiming the testimony that was revealed by Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he is in exile. So he got up one morning. It's a beautiful island. There's pine trees on the island, beautiful blue, uh, a G and C. And he is there uh, sitting one morning. All of a sudden, he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Probably scared him to death, blasted him off the rock that he was sitting on. And he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this doesn't mean I was walking by the Spirit, which is a phrase we have in Galatians uh, 5.16. It doesn't mean he was filled by the Spirit, which is a phrase we have in Ephesians uh, 5.18. It is a different phrase indicated by the context. And this phrase, being in the Spirit, is a phrase used of being in a revelatory state of mind where God the Holy Spirit is revealing in the process of inspiration the Word of God. So it is not a kind of status that just anybody can get into. It is a state that was specifically related to the communication of revelation. And so he is in this state, and he is blasted off the rock by this loud voice. And we think of this several times, and later on we'll, a few verses we see the image that the sound of Jesus Christ speaking was like the sound of many waters. Now, this isn't like a fountain. This isn't like a rippling brook. Many water. This is like a rushing, flooding torrent. It is loud. It is roaring. It is attention-grabbing. So he hears this loud voice of a trumpet. He doesn't say it's a trumpet. It's just like a trumpet. Saying, and this is the content of the message, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and. Now I have to scratch that out. Why? It's not in the oldest manuscripts. It's not in the majority of manuscripts. You only find it in a very few manuscripts, and those happen to be the basis for the TR. So... The Lord Jesus Christ, or, or the, he hears this voice, it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. We know this is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same commission that's repeated in verse 19 by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he hears the voice, and he just hears this command, what you see, write in a book. See, it's important to understand that God wants the truth in Scripture. It can be communicated. It can be where we live in a world today when people don't think you can communicate with words. People don't think you can communicate with written words, and if you do, you can be misunderstood. So we really don't know what God said. We just have to all go off into our corners and contemplate our navels and meditate, and you have your view, and that person has their view. And since we're all equal priests to God, then our views are equally valid, equally wrong. God communicated to be understood. He created us with a mind that was built in such a way that it could receive revelation from God, it could read revelation from God, and was designed to understand revelation from God. It just didn't happen by chance. That's the presupposition of modern uh, thought, of postmodern thought, actually, is that man just can't really understand God. Well, that means, see, they don't believe God created us in the first place. But if the Bible is true that God created us, don't you think he's capable enough, powerful enough, intelligent enough to create us with the kind of receptor in our mind that will be able to receive what he has to communicate so that he's able to 
get across to us and we're able to comprehend what he says. The problem with most people is they don't want to understand what he says. It's not that they can't. It's that if if he really means what that indicates it means, that makes me too uncomfortable. So it's got to mean something else. So we find ways to somehow avoid the reality of what God is saying. Sort of like Gideon. God, I know you want me to go defeat the Midianites, but I just want to make sure. Let me see. If I can come up with a really difficult task and you don't do it, then that means I don't have to go fight the Midianites. So we'll put a fleece out here. And if everything else is dry and the fleece is wet, then I know that you want me to go do this. Well, his presupposition is God can't do this, and I'm going to come up with something too difficult for God so I can avoid having to go. He already knows what God wants him to do. He doesn't want to do it. This is the, the orientation of the carnal mind. Most of us are uncomfortable with some of the statements in Scripture that God wants us to do. So we are to... Uh, John is to write in a book, so it's going to be forever inscripturated, forever recorded, so that people can understand God's will. Write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then that next phrase, which are in Asia, is not there. It was obviously inserted by a scribe to make sure, uh, from verse 4 to make sure that the reader would understand where these places are located. And they're listed in a clockwise fashion to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that are the foundation for the letters in chapter 2 and 3. So you can't understand what's really going on in chapter 2 and 3 unless you understand the last half of chapter 1. It sets the sage. Tells us who they are and why they're important and what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. So these are the cities, starting in the lower left. Ephesus, which is at the time was on the coast. It's no longer there. It's 40 miles from the sea now due to silting from the river. Uh, it was a town of population of about a quarter of a million at the time. Then you move north to Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally ending up at Laodicea. Each town had different characteristics. Each town had different uh, emphases. They were the seat of different gods or goddesses in the Greek pantheon. And each church had different uh, characteristics. And we'll see that as we go through those churches. Then, at the same time, this is powerful. This is such a dynamic situation. John is sitting there. It's very quiet. All of a sudden, he's blasted off the rocks by this sound. He hears the voice that commissions him to write the things that he sees in a book. And as he hears this, at the same time, he turns to the sound, just like any of us would. It's a rapid turning uh, to to what he has heard, and he sees the voice. Actually, you don't see a voice, do you? You see the one who is speaking. And he turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's the first thing that he sees, is these seven lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, we have to take some time to just understand what these this clothing represents. All of this can be understood by just studying Scripture. You don't just contemplate these images in Revelation and think, hmm, wonder what that means. You go into the Scripture to see how were each of these used over the course of Scripture because Scripture interprets Scripture, so that helps us to understand what they refer to. Now, what do the lampstands refer to? Well, we know what they refer to because they are identified in the last verse. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven church, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So the seven lampstands that he sees are represent, each one represents one of these congregations at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in the midst of them is one like the Son of Man. And this phrase again pictures that Son of Man personage in Daniel chapter 7, who is a political figure, 
a military figure who comes and destroys the kingdom of man and establishes his own kingdom. So he is one who is going to come in judgment as he establishes his kingdom at the end of the age. So Son of Man is a messianic title related to Jesus Christ coming at the second advent. It pictures not only here his priesthood, but also his role as judge. And this is uh, confirmed by uh, his clothing. John 5.22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So he is not only prophet, priest, and king, he is also judge. And he functions in that role when he comes as uh, the Son of Man. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden uh, golden band. Now the garment that is that he's wearing that goes down to the feet is the garment of a priest. So that pictures him as a priest and a judge. And he's girded about the chest with a golden band. And this, again, uh, is something reminiscent of a, uh, of a messenger priest, someone of a high office. Daniel 10.5 uh, has a reference to a, in a personage in a vision to Daniel that has a is clothed in linen and his waist is is uh, girded uh, with gold. So it indicates someone who is of importance, someone of high high rank. Revelation one uh, fourteen then says then pictures him. His head is hair, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now. This represents him as being purified. This is what happened uh, at the cross. It is a sign that his hair turned white because of the pain of the cross. It is a picture of him as the one with authority, one who has been purified. It is an indication in Scripture of maturity and experience. This is the same thing we see in Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 where the ancient of days has hair that's white like wool. It indicates a position of wisdom and a position of authority. It is white, his hair, his head and his hair are white like wool. It's white as snow and his eyes like a flaming fire. Daniel 10.6 uses this same imagery. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, that's a brilliant white, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Notice the similarity in these Images, eyes like burning fire. This indicates that they see everything. They are that fire burns; it purifies. And so, this is an image not only of omniscience, but an omniscience that is related to seeing and knowing, with uh, the purpose of judging and evaluating. Furthermore, in Revelation 1.15, his feet were like fine brass, and actually, the word that is used there in the Greek is cal. Kalibanan, which is not found anywhere outside the book of Revelation. We don't know whether it's gold, brass, bronze, silver, platinum. It is, this is the only occurrence of the word, but it refers to some sort of refined metal or alloy. And the picture is that it has been refined, that it has uh, been judged, that is purification. This, of course, uh, happens at the cross and that the, the brilliance of it, the whiteness of it, it's been refined in a fiery furnace, indicates this brilliant white image that John sees of Jesus Christ. White hair, white robe, uh, brilliant white arms and legs. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, the sound of a flood, the sound of a of a tsunami. This is a roar that catches John's attention. Revelation one sixteen. He had in his right hand seven stars. So the seven candlesticks are distinct from the seven stars. The seven stars we're going to be told in verse twenty refer to the angels or the messengers related to these seven. Uh, congregations. We've studied this in the past. I'll do a detailed analysis of it again when we begin our 
uh, study of the of the next chapter. These angels, uh, some people say they're pastors, some people say they were human messengers, but if we're consistent with its use in the book of Revelation, they are angels. Throughout the book of Revelation, angels always relate to the execution of divine judgment. Everywhere else, everywhere the word angel is used, angelos is used in Revelation other than these eight uses, here and the seven at the beginning of each of the letters, it refers to a supernatural being. Everywhere else in the book of Revelation, that supernatural being is being used to carry out the judgment of God. So the whole image that we have here in Revelation 1 is of the Lord Jesus Christ as priest, judge, who is holding these seven angels in his hand. Why? It indicates his control and that the the function of these angels, to be consistent with the whole book, has something to do with carrying out judgment. Well, what do the seven epistles, these seven short postcards in Revelation 2 and 3 have to do with? Read them if you haven't read them. They're evaluation statements. They're judgment statements with a warning and a promise at the end of each one that the one who overcomes will receive certain blessing. So it makes sense that they must be interpreted within this context uh, of judgment and evaluation. And in that context, it only makes sense to understand that these angels are angels related to that uh, evaluation of the local church. He had in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This isn't the Machira, the short two-edged sword that we think of when we think of uh, passages. Uh, For example, like uh, uh, 2 Timothy, that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Excuse me, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? That's a Machira. This isn't a Machira. It's a rompia. It's a a long, broadsword. Again, it pictures someone coming to do battle, someone coming to fight, someone co- coming to establish them. This is what the Son of Man is going to do when he comes at the second coming. So out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. It pictures judgment coming from his lips, from what he says. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Again, the whole image is that of the Lord Jesus Christ as being uh, a brilliant white light. Verse 17, when I saw him, see here, he, here John is, don't lose the context, he hears the noise, he's startled, he blasted off, his, off the rock he's sitting on, he turns, he sees this image, and as soon as he sees it, the power of it is so great that he j- just passes out. Like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord revealed in Isaiah 6, he just fell on his face. It's, he, he doesn't just sit there and say, hey, how's it going, Lord? This isn't the Lord he hung with while the Lord was incarnate on the planet. This is a powerful vision that knocks him, almost knocks him dead. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. One of the titles for the Lord Jesus Christ, indicating his eternality. So he comforts him. He says, don't be afraid. And he identifies himself again, I am he who lives. See, John might not have recognized him right off the bat. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. There's a break there. He emphasizes, I am the one who conquered death, and I have the risen Jesus Christ. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. What does that mean? Well, a key indicates power and control. I have control over Hades, which is where the dead go, prior to the judgment at the great white throne judgment. Having the keys indicates I have authority, I have power over Hades and death. What does that mean? This is the jailkeeper. He's the jailer. He's got the keys. Remember, I quoted John 5.22 earlier that all judgment has been given to me. This is a picture of the risen Lord Jesus Christ as the jailkeeper. He's the one who has the key to release those who are in jail, and he will judge them. So then we have our commission in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are... 
That's the present church age, present tense of the verb. And the things which shall take place after this. And we see that phrase, after this, occur again in Revelation 4.1 when John says, after these things, that is, after the church has been developed and, and evaluated in Revelation 2 and 3, he saw a door in heaven open and he was caught up into heaven. And this is a picture of the rapture of the church that occurs prior to the seven-year tribulation. And then he begins to interpret. The Word of God always interprets itself. God always gives us the uh, clues to interpreting the symbols that are in Scripture. And so Jesus Christ says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So next time we'll do a review, an analysis of the first churches that are mentioned, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. We've covered these in detail, but we'll come back and go through chapter 2 next time just to pull this together. And remember, we all fit into this somewhere or another. We have a Lord who saved us, but He's also the Lord, our peer Judge who will evaluate us at the judgment seat of Christ for the purpose of being a part of his administration to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you that we can look at your word, that we can understand the perspective of your word, and that it reveals to us not only truths about salvation, but about the future, about our role, our destiny with you, that we are destined to be kings, priests to God. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He died for every sin that you've committed, every sin you will commit. He died for the sins of all people. So that the issue is no longer your morality, your religiosity, whatever it might be, the issue is your relationship to Jesus Christ. The issue is, are you willing to accept his free gift of salvation? Or are you willing to trust in him and him alone to save you? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a simple matter of trust or reliance. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life which can never be taken from you. This is the free gift that you can take advantage of this morning. The instant you trust in Christ, God the Father knows what you are trusting in. He knows that you have put your faith in Christ. And at that instant, he imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to you, declares you justified, regenerates you, and gives you eternal life. And these are your possessions forever. Now, Father, we pray for those of us who are believers that we might be encouraged and strengthened by the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.